This is the weekly message from Hope Church Malmesbury. We're so glad you can join us. This week's sermon is part of our series, The Promise and the Purpose. We're walking slowly through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, promise by promise. Find out more about Hope Church and how to support our ministry at www.thehope.church. I hope this message will help you to see the good purpose that God has for your life and help you to walk in faith and rely on his promises every day. Here's the message. So good morning, welcome to Hope Church. Whether you're in the room joining us uh, online, you're very welcome. And today's passage starts with Jesus going for a meal with one of the Pharisees. Now we aren't told what Jesus had for dinner, but it got me wondering, what were these ancient foods? that Jesus ate, or what were the ancient foods in general? So I found some interesting stuff online. Unfortunately, the the graphics aren't ideally formatted for the screen. So I'm going to have to do some reading for you, but it's a little bit of a quiz. Okay, and I want you to tell me where these ancient foods came from. So, (laughs) the first one is so-called Swedish meatballs. Do you think they originated in Sweden, clues in the name, or Turkey, okay? Hands up if you think Swedish meatballs started in Turkey. And Sweden? Ah. Well, the answer is Swedish meatballs are based on a Turkish recipe that was brought to Sweden in the 1700s. Okay, let's try the next one. How about le croissant? Do you think croissants originated in France or Austria? Hands up for France and Austria. Actually, croissants came from Vienna in Austria. Who'd have thunk? Who'd have thunk? Okay, let's try again. Next one. Donuts. Okay, Homer Simpson's staple. Were they originated in New York or Greece? You pick any food, Bethany. I'll tell you how that food originates in Greece, right? (laughs) Okay, hands up for Greece. I think you're kind of getting the theme of this uh, quiz now, aren't you? And our survey says... Yes. Donuts do indeed come from Greece. Um, About 776 BC, the Greeks started eating donuts. Okay, it's pretty good, isn't it? A healthy Mediterranean diet. That's fine, okay? (laughs) Let's go for it. Okay, how about ice cream? Did ice cream come from Mongolia or Italy? What do you reckon? Hands up for Italy. Gelato is from Italy. Gelato is from Mongolia. And the answer is uh, 1200 AD in Mongolia. 95 years later, it turned up in Italy. Apparently, the theory is some Mongolian horsemen were taking a load of milk by horseback across the Mongolian steppe. So it was getting churned up on horseback, and by the time they got to where they were going, in this frozen weather, it turned into ice cream. That's what they say. Okay. <laughs> One more. Okay, churros. Churros. They're, they're famous, they're like straight donuts, because making donuts in a circle is too hard for the Spanish, so they just make them in a straight line. <laughs> so, but do you think... Churros, that famous of the high street in Chippenham, the man who sells churros, but did they originate in China or Spain? What do you think, Pastor Lydia? I think China now. 
do you think, China? Well, what is, what's the real answer? Um, so about 1200 AD, churros were invented in China. They didn't get to Spain until another 350 years later, and they were taken there by the Portuguese. And when they came back from China on the Silk Road. Okay, is there any more, Dave? Four more. Wow. Okay, Scotch eggs. <laughs> do you think Scotch eggs come from India or Scotland? What do you think? At some point, the, the, the balance has got to move, right? Who thinks India? Okay, what does the survey say? So about 300 BC, the Indians were making Scotch eggs. They didn't get to Scotland until 1738 AD. Okay, so basically, the Indians were eating Scotch eggs 2,000 years before anyone in Glasgow had the idea. It's amazing, isn't it? Okay, our next ancient food. What about pasta? Pasta, Italian pasta, right? It's got to come from, it, or is it from China? What do you reckon? China. China? China? Okay, so what do we say? In 1 BC, the Chinese were eating pasta. It wasn't until 1200 AD that the Italians were eating pasta. They think it was actually Marco Polo who brought it back to Italy from China. Okay. Vindaloo curry. Is it from Portugal or India? Is it a trick question? What do you reckon? Hands up. Vindaloo is Portuguese. Who reckons? Vindaloo is Indian. The answer is... 1300 AD, Vindaloo curry was originated in Portugal. A hundred years later, they started eating it in India. It's amazing, isn't it? Okay. Last one. Fish and chips. Is fish and chips Portuguese or British? What do you reckon? <laughs> Hands up for British fish and chips. Hands up for Portuguese fish and chips. Actually, the answer is fish and chips are Portuguese. So they reckon the, the dish was developed in Portugal about 800 AD. We didn't start to eat it in England until 1500 AD. Okay, so there's, what, uh, 800 years later. But they think it was actually uh, a dish inspired. It's a development of the native... Uh, cuisine of the persecuted Jews who moved to Portugal, who were eating fried fish. So the answer to our question, what did Jesus have when he went for dinner at the Pharisees? Fish and chips. <laughs> it's a long way around. So we join Jesus today in the middle of a scene. If you recall, the last couple of weeks we've been in this same place, going through the same uh, story. Jesus has been surrounded by this same crowd for a little while. It's taken us, what, three weeks to get through it so far. A few weeks ago, you remember that a lady said, oh, blessed is the woman who raised you. And Jesus replied, well, blessed is the person who hears the word of God and puts it into action. And then the crowd was asking for a sign. And Jesus said, well, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Three days in the dark, then raised back to life again. And then the gospel preached to the Gentiles. And Jesus challenged the crowd, how far are you prepared to go to hear from God? And last week, Sue opened up what the Lord uh, was saying about learning and, and using light as a metaphor of how uh, good teaching is the light that shows you the way. Um, the implication, some of the religious scholars in the crowd have been shining darkness <laughs> rather than light around them. And so we turn to today's passage, Luke Chapter 11, starting verse 37, he goes like this. As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal, or fish and chips. 
And so he went in and he took his place at the table. And his host was amazed to see that he sat down without first performing the hand-washing ceremony as required by Jewish custom. And then the Lord said to him, Well, you Pharisees, you're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Fools. Didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor and you will be clean all over. Oh, what sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, if you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Oh, what sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, for you love to sit in the seats of honour in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk about in the marketplace. Yes, says Jesus, what sorrow awaits you? You're like hidden graves in a field. People walk over them without knowing what corruption they are stepping on. Well, teacher, said a a teacher of the expert in religious law, he said, you've been insulting us too in what you've said. Yes, says Jesus. (laughs) What sorrow awaits you also, you experts in religious law? For you crush people with this unbearable weight of religious demands and you never even lift a finger to ease the burden. Oh, what sorrow awaits you. You build monuments to the prophets prophets that your own ancestors killed. But in fact, you just stand as a witness and agree with what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you join in their crime by building these monuments. This is what God in his wisdom said about you. I will send prophets and apostles to them but they will kill some and persecute others. So as a result, this generation will be held responsible for the murder of all of God's prophets from the creation of the world, from the murder of Abel to the murder of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, it will certainly be charged against this generation. What sorrow awaits you, you experts in religious law, for you remove the key to knowledge from the people. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent others from entering. And as Jesus was leaving, the the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, they became hostile and they tried to provoke him with many questions. And they wanted to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord God, that this morning you would open your word to us, that we would understand what you want to say, Lord God. Father, I pray that you speak through me, that our hearts would be humble and teachable, our ears would be open to hear all you would say. Amen. Amen. So today's passage, today's story starts with this very cheeky Pharisee. Jesus had just issued this great judgment against an evil generation, the sign of Jonah, recorded from a few weeks ago. He warns about hiding the light of the gospel, which Sue spoke about last week. And then this Pharisee from the crowd shouts out, well, that's very nice, Jesus, but do you want to come round mine for dinner? And Jesus, of course, says, yes. I mean, imagine seeing a crowd in the high street yesterday. You push your way to the front to see who it is, and it's old Tom Cruise. He's just popped over, he's enjoyed the air show, and he's come to Malmesbury to buy some cupcakes from the cake tin. And he's having a bit of a rant about the corrupt society. And someone interrupts him, Steve, and says, Oi, do you want to come back to mine for a barbecue? (laughs) And while the entourage and hangers-on are still rolling their eyes, Tom Cruise goes, Yeah, all right. Let's go. I mean, it's that kind of, you know, unusualness that is going on. So Jesus heads right back to the Pharisees' home, and this meal is prepared. 
and all the Pharisees and his religious friends, they go through these elaborate hand-washing and arm-washing ceremonies. Okay? They want to cleanse themselves from the pollution of that unclean society out there. I mean, you never know who you might have bumped up to in the crowd without realising, right? So you've got to wash all your arms and your shoulders. You don't know who you would have touched. But Jesus just strolls up to the table, flops down on the floor, reaches out and grabs a slice of cake. Hey, when you're the son of God, you make the rules right. If you want to have dessert first, you can. Verse 38, and his host was amazed to see that he sat down without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. And the Lord said to him, you Pharisees, you're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but you're filthy and full of greed and wickedness. He falls. God, didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? You see, in the thousand years since Moses had passed on his law to the Jewish nation, there had been lots of additions, clarifications, footnotes, and asides that have been written and added to the law of Moses. This was called the Torah. And there was this, what they call the oral tradition, okay? All the traditions and interpretations that were added to the core stuff that Moses written down. And one example of this was the way that you wash your dishes. The law in Leviticus, the stuff that Moses written down, provides very clear instructions for cleaning pots and dishes which get contaminated by an unclean animal. So it talks about if there's a gecko walking across your scene and it lands in your pot, right, you've got to wash it before you use it again for cooking. The vessel is considered unclean. But that simple instruction gets developed over the years into a series of rules about how to clean the pots, how to keep them spotless. And there was even two different rabbinic uh, schools of kind of rabbinic thought at the time. And one of them said, you have to clean the inside first, and then you have to clean the outside, because dirt goes from the inside and the outside. If the inside is dirty and you wash the outside first, you make the inside dirty again. Well, there's the other half of the rabbi said, oh, no, no, you just need to wash the outside. Make sure it looks nice. See, it seems crazy to us now with our understanding of mini beasties and germs that you would clean the outside of your cooking pot but not the inside, which is the bit that actually touches the food. And this is the point that Jesus is making. He said, it's crazy to focus on cleaning the outside of your body when you neglect to clean the inside of your body, your, your heart and your mind, the attitudes that pollute and corrupt you from the inside out. And you know, the Jews, or even to this day, they have three kind of acts of piety which they hold in high regard. Giving alms to the poor, prayer, and fasting. These are the three things that you would expect every good Jewish boy, every good Jewish family to do on a regular basis. And Jesus says, if you want to cleanse yourself of that inner sin of greed, well, you do that by giving alms to the poor, giving money to the poor. That's what he says in verse 41. He says, clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor, and then you'll be clean all over. And I think if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we can be just as clever as the Pharisees at twisting Scripture for our own purposes. I mean, just, just think about it for a second. Jesus said, cleanse your inside by giving gifts to the poor. And then you'll be clean all over. How does our 21st century evangelical mindset cope with that kind of a declaration from Jesus? Do we start thinking, albeit subconsciously or maybe deliberately, 
what? I'm already clean, right? God's grace has taken away my sin. I'm forgiven. I'm on my way to heaven. I don't need to do anything in order to become clean. And that's good Christian theology right there. But I think it deserves a yes but. Yes but. Yes, we are cleansed by God's grace. So we don't have to give to the poor in order to be clean in God's eyes. Right? But, yes but. But God's grace is not a license to sin. Yeah, Romans 6.1 says, Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live within it? So, so this is the point I'm trying to make. While we can say, quite correctly, I don't need to give to the poor in order to be cleansed, yeah, yeah the grace of God. But we need to make sure that what is actually going on in our heart is not us being greedy and saying, actually, I don't want to share what I have. And so I'm going to talk about grace as an excuse not to share what I have. And so allow greed and avarice to continue to live in my heart. Because you see, the only way to deal with greed yeah the only way to get rid of greed in your life I'm not talking about the only way for God to forgive it he's forgiven it but you can still be greedy every day so if you want to get rid of that greed in your heart the only way to get rid of it is to get rid of the things that you're greedily holding on to and the reason why we continue to hold on to them is because at some level we don't actually trust God to replace the thing that we give away or we don't trust God to come through for us in our time of need. So it's not about earning God's forgiveness. It's about trying to lead a better life so that God has less to forgive. It's about becoming more like Jesus and less like we used to be. It's about being honest that actually we're being greedy and lacking in faith. That's why we're keeping our money and we use the excuse of saying, oh, well, you know, don't need to give to the poor to get forgiven. No, you don't. But if you want to stop being a slave to greed, you need to give away the things that you hold on to too tightly. So Jesus is saying, you know, you've got to keep the main thing the main thing. And these these Pharisees, these people who appear to make religion the most important thing in their life, Jesus says to them, What sorrow awaits you, you Pharisees? You are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb garden, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Now, one of the the characteristics of of living the the life of a a Pharisee, these, these people who try to always obey every aspect of the Old Testament law, plus all of the oral tradition that had been added to it over the years, I mean, give them a list of rules and they are happy, right? So the law of Moses says, tithe your produce, yeah? Give 10% of what you have to God. So they did that, even to the point of taking a pair of scissors to their herb garden and taking 10% of the leaves off every herb and taking that and put it in the collection plate at church. And Jesus doesn't criticize them for doing this. In fact, he says, well, you should be doing that. But he's saying, in case you missed it, Jesus said, you should tithe, 
But the Pharisees were neglecting something that Jesus actually calls more important. Yeah? The justice and love of God. And our responsibility as people of God to make sure that those who need it get to see and receive God's love and justice. To stand up for the oppressed. To offer love to the unloved. As the prophet Micah puts it, he says, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. This is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. You see, the point of the law, the point of the liturgies that we follow, the point of the sacrifice is not that these things have value in and of themselves. The value is the results that they achieve. We do things that do things. And the point of following the law is not to achieve a tick against every rule and command. You have got 100% score, tick them all off. The point of the law is to become the person that it turns you into. A person who loves mercy. To be someone who walks humbly with their God and always does what is right. Not because they're obeying a rule, but because you've turned into someone who does that stuff naturally. And this is the point. This is the main thing. We've always got to keep it in mind. Don't get distracted by the little stuff. Realise the point of what is behind the things that we do. Don't make the little things bigger than they deserve to be. And this kind of walking humbly is a really important bit. Apparently the Pharisees enjoyed a very kind of high social status. You could tell that someone was a Pharisee by the way that they dressed and the way that they talked and the way that they were treated by other people. When a Pharisee walked down the street, they'd often get a little crowd following them. Well, what are they going to say? They're going to pass the wisdom. They might tell us something from God. This is amazing. And along comes Jesus, who always has a much bigger crowd. So maybe they're feeling a little bit jealous. Maybe they're feeling a little bit, you know, challenged. And the Pharisees, they think they're receiving this affirmation from the people because of the pious lives that they lived. But in reality, what they're doing, they're leaving the people dirty, not clean. This is what Jesus is getting at. In verse 43, he says, What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees? You love to sit in the seats of honour in the synagogues, to receive respectful greetings as you walk down the marketplace. But you're like hidden graves in the field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they are stepping on. And this goes back to the Old Testament law, which the Pharisees would have known very well. It says, If you touch a dead body, you're unclean. In fact, even touching a grave that contains a dead body makes you ceremonially unclean. You're not allowed to go to church. It takes you, you know, days of ceremony to get yourself all sorted out again. And so you had this tradition then in Jewish society of whitewashing tombs. So people could see them clearly and avoid them. So they walk around them and don't become ceremonially unclean. But an unmarked grave, you could walk over it without even realising and so suddenly find yourself corrupted and not allowed to go to temple, not allowed to go to church, ceremony unclean. You don't even know. You can't even fix it. And Jesus is saying that these Pharisees, they're like these unmarked graves. People are picking up corruption without even knowing it because of the teaching of the Pharisees. is leading them away from God and not towards God. And I think for us today, the challenge, if we can translate it into our lives, is... Are we the sort of person who, as we go through life, do we sow life and leave a trail of life behind us? Or is it a trail of corruption and people worse off than when they first met us? Do people end up being 
closer to God or further away from God as a result of the things that we say to them and the things that they see us doing. And they judge God by the way that they see God's people behave, right? Do we speak life? Or do we criticize and cut down? Do we gossip? Or do we build up and praise one another when we're speaking in the canteen at work? Do we show the love of God? Or do we condemn the sinner without offering them the hope and revealing them to them the mercy of God which is equal to his justice and judgment? And actually there's, there's two groups in the crowd in the kind of religious establishment of the day. You had the Pharisees who were like a religious sect, a denomination if you like within Judaism. And then you had the lawyers not, not lawyers as in solicitors and barristers. Um, sometimes th- these people are called scribes in the Bible. They're actually men who are experts in the law of Moses and the interpretation of the law of Moses. So today we might call them a professional theologian. Yeah? And after listening to Jesus criticize the Pharisees, a spokesman for the lawyers, for the professional theologian, pipes up because much of what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is starting to feel a little bit close to home to these professional interpreters of the law. And he says, teacher, I think you're insulting us in what you're saying to the Pharisees. And Jesus goes, yep, yes I am. I did insult you and you deserve it. Jesus says, what sorrow awaits you, you experts in religious law. For you crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Yeah, and this... This is a verse that should make every preacher and teacher and home group leader lose sleep overnight. Because it's a solemn responsibility to teach from the words of Scripture. And the job is not just to say what the Bible says, or even to explain what the Bible says, but it's also to say how you can now apply this to your life. What should this mean on Monday morning when you go to work? How do you make the theology practical How do you make the revelation relevant? And I don't think the Jewish theologians were doing this. They simply were piling up all these demands of ceremonial law without helping people to know, well, how am I supposed to achieve this? How am I going to make this possible leading my everyday life? It kind of reminds me of a story about Tom Cruise. So... It's a, it's a second part story, second-hand story, because he was actually the story is related by Matt Damon from the Bourne food movies. But he's talking about this conversation he had with Tom Cruise, and they were talking about the Mission Impossible film, where Tom Cruise was on the outside of the building, the, the Burj Khalifa in um, Dubai, and he was he was telling Matt Damon, he said, yeah, I'd, I'd had this vision for this shot." for like five years, and I knew I wanted to put it into one of my movies. Well, I was going to be on the side of this building, you know, and Tom does all his own, sh- all his own stunts, a bit like me, <laughs> and Howard. We do all our own stunts, don't we, Howard? And um, so Tom was literally going to be on the outside of this building, was it three miles up, how tall this, this thing is, and he knew what the camera angles were going to be and how he was going to do it and how he fit in with the story. So he was explaining all of this to his safety guy on, on the movie, you know, the, the stunt safety guy. And he, and he was saying, well, this is what I want to do. I want to be up on the side of the building, three miles up. I'm going to be hanging on. Oh, and the camera angle do this. It's going to be amazing. And, and what do you think? And the safety guy goes, no. You can't do that. It's too dangerous. 
Well, what did you do? He said, Matt Damon. Tom says, well, I've got a new safety guy. <laughs> and we made the shot. And, you know, and this is the trap we can fall into. I think the, 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 the religious theologians fell into it, and as Christians we can fall into it as well, where actually we think we're just about saying, no, you can't do that all the time. And what happens if you say, no, I can't do that all the time? Tom Cruise gets a new safety guy. And if all we say is no without providing a way to how to do it safely, people will find someone else to listen to. And if you wonder why the church has lost its prophetic voice in the corridors of government, it's because we've been so busy saying no. We never explain how. How to do it, how to make it work. And for all of us, whenever we speak about our faith, whenever we unpack the words of Scripture, whether it's to another believer or to someone who's a pre-believer, we need to make sure we always explain how to apply that truth. What does it mean to everyday life? When you're getting up in the morning and you're trying to walk the dog and take the children to school or go to work and all that kind of stuff. You know, for, for centuries before this point where Jesus is talking to the crowd, God has sent prophets to his people, to the Jewish nation. And those prophets have been ignored, or killed by the people they'd been sent to because the people didn't want to hear the message. They weren't interested in being told to change. And Jesus says, well, and you lot are no different, he says, talking to the crowd. Because you're not listening to the prophet who stands in front of you now, right? The very son of God, the Messiah. You're making the same mistake your ancestors made. Jesus says in verse 50, this generation is going to be held responsible for the murder of all of God's prophets from the creation of the world, from the, from the murder of Abel to the murder of Zechariah. It's going to be charged against this generation. It's interesting, Jesus says, from the, Jesus is very poetic. He's a good writer, is Jesus. He comes up with some good lines. And Jesus says, from A to Z, from Abel to Zechariah, from the beginning to end, from the murder of, of Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain, the first person murdered in the Old Testament, to the murder of Zechariah. Now, Zechariah's murder happens in two chronicles, which in the Jewish Bible was the last book. So he's basically saying, for the first person ever killed in your scriptures to the last person ever killed in your scripture, from A to Z, from beginning to end. All of these people, all these prophets that God was sending, you've rejected them and you killed them, and you're going to continue to do that because you're going to reject and kill the Messiah. This is kind of what Jesus is saying to them. And he wraps up all of these woes with this final zinger. And he says, you religious experts... You remove the key of knowledge from people. You don't enter the kingdom yourself, and you're preventing others from entering. You know, the, the religious experts, they should have listened to, to Steve's sermon from a few weeks ago. And then they would know that you're supposed to do what the scriptures say. It's not simply headology, yeah? The knowledge of scripture is not the goal. It is a life transformed by putting scripture into practice every day. And interestingly, the scribes in the synagogues, the ones who had the responsibility of explaining Scripture to the people, that knowledge, that responsibility is described as a key, a key that gives access to God's kingdom. And spoilers, in a few chapters, what's Jesus going to do? He's going to give Peter keys to the kingdom, including the key of knowledge. And at that point, the responsibility of explaining the meaning of Scripture so that people can enter into God's kingdom is transferred from the Jewish leaders to Jesus' church. 
and the work of Peter and all the apostles that came after him. So the purpose, I think, in today's passage, as Jesus speaks correction to ancient religious leaders, denominations and temple jobs that actually don't even exist anymore, but the principles apply to us today, people of the book. And I think we need to make sure we don't fall into the same traps. I think you can summarize it as this. First of all, what goes on inside our heads and our heart is more important than what happens on the outside. So do whatever you need to do to guard your heart and mind. If that means giving away some things that you are finding too precious, well then give them away. Because as soon as you feel that rise up and you say, no, I don't need to. You know, that means you probably should, right? Maybe it means there's some programs you need to stop watching. Some people you need to stop hanging around with. Some places on the internet you need to stop visiting. You know those things, right? Because they're the things you're thinking of right now that you don't need to give up. Secondly, we need to keep the main thing the main thing. Yeah, focus on the transformation that God desires for us. So that in every situation we will do what is right. We will love mercy and we will walk humbly with our God. We need to be careful and care what rubs off on the people around us. Do we speak life? Do we build up? Do we encourage in every situation? And finally, we need to recognize that Scripture is not a stick to hit people with. It is a map that shows them the way to a better life and where to find a God who loves them. So that first means that we need to understand how to read the map, right? We can't show someone else the way if we don't, if we're lost ourselves. And if we're applying it to our lives, then we can show other people how to apply it to their lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I pray that we've covered a lot of ground this morning, Lord God, but that for each one of us, there's, there's at least one thing that we need to take away and put into practice this week. And Father, I pray that we won't forget it as we walk out of that door. We won't be melted from our minds in the heat wave, Lord God, but we will remember what you've said. Maybe we'll go back, we'll read over this passage. Maybe we'll listen again to the recording of this sermon on the, on the website. But Lord God, that we won't just walk on by. We won't reject the words of the prophet like the people in today's passage did, but we'll listen to the words of Jesus and we'll put them into practice. So that in every situation we will do what is right. We will love mercy and justice and walk humbly with our God. Amen. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.